Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of Personalized Medicine Podcast. Our guest today is Rocio Acuna Hidalgo. She is a co-founder and CTO of Nostos Genomics, a Berlin-based company that develops AI tools to diagnose patients with genetic diseases. Choosing the guest for today's episode was extremely easy for me because I couldn't really think of any better person to talk to on genomics than Rocio. She has a very interesting career, starting as a physician, then moving to research, and now she's an entrepreneur running her own company. She completed her MD training in Mexico and then moved to Netherlands to pursue first master's and then a PhD degree in human genetics at Radboud University in Nijmegen. She was also a postdoc fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Genetics in Berlin. Rocio published a series of very interesting papers on de novo mutations in leukemias and other hematologic malignancies, and you can find the link to those publications in the description of this episode. I met Rocio about a year ago in Berlin at Entrepreneur First Startup Accelerator. Rocio co-founded Nostos Genomics there, and I have been following her journey with great delight. Rocio, it is a great pleasure to welcome you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I, the pleasure is mine, and thank you so much. Great. Rocio, today I want to talk with you about genomics and how it is changing the landscape of modern medicine. And uh, I would like to start with a little bit of history, if you don't mind. No, perfect. Let's do history. <laughs> I think actually, uh, like the last, I would say the last 20 years have been like really, really interesting uh, for genetics and for genomics. It's really been, uh, the field has completely transformed, uh, I think, since, since the early 2000s. Exactly. It has been about 16 years since the Human Genome Project was completed, uh, something like that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And then the technological improvement has been amazing. Then going back to Human Genome Project, I think a general vibe around the time was that, okay, we can learn everything about human genes and diseases they cause, and we will find the ways to treat them. But now, when we look back at that time, we realize that not all of those assumptions were true. Um, but still, remaining on the positive side, what have we learned from Human Genome Project and how has it helped us to move forward with our understanding of human genes? Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's actually a really interesting question because I think you're really on top with that. Uh, I think when when the Human Genome Project started, um, there was an idea that you know all we would have to do was to sequence the genome and everything would sort of like fall into place. And now, indeed, you know, it's been I think about 15 years since the the Human Genome Project finished, and I think actually we haven't even finished putting together the human genome. So even though the project has concluded. Um, we still have parts of the human genome that we don't have a real reference for, that we don't, we're not entirely sure what they look like. 
So, so it's proved to be like much more challenging than I think uh, people set out for at the beginning. But I mean, not to be, uh, you know, not to uh, be defeated by this. I think the Human Genome Project has really brought a, a lot of information. I think a lot of, of it came in hand in hand with the technological developments. So what the Human Genome Project provided us was with uh, the human reference genome, which is a sort of uh, a blueprint of what the human genome looks like. So this is essentially you know, all of the components that we need to have in, uh, in our DNA, in the genome of a human being, to actually create a human being. Great. Yeah, I think the knowledge that the Human Genome Project has provided were really important for further development. And I think what happened on the technological front of genomics over the last, say, 15 years was remarkable. What do you think was the impact of next generation sequencing, or as we call it, NGS, and perhaps some other technologies that help us sequence genomes faster on the development of genomics overall? Yeah, I mean, uh, NGS has been fundamental. Uh, I think uh, NGS has really been the technology that has transformed the field and that has really uh, changed the way we, we approach uh, genomics and how genetics plays a role now in, in medicine. I mean, simply going from the cost, uh, I was looking at numbers earlier today and back in 2000, in the early 2000s, when, which is when the first uh, genomes were being produced, sequencing a human genome was about 200 million in US dollars. I mean, just the first draft took several, several years uh, of, you know, scientists around the world working on this. And now thanks to next generation sequencing, I mean, 15 years later, we are, uh, the cost of a human genome is less than $1,000. And and it's really become, uh, it's a technology that has enabled us really to uh, look into uh, any given person's DNA and try to find answers to health problems. Yeah, my next question is, what does NGS actually brings in terms of diagnostic potential? We can do sequencing faster, it is obviously cheaper, but how much clinical value can we really extract from it? Yeah, um, so that's, that's also a great question because the possibility to, it's not just been that we can sequence faster and cheaper but also we can sequence more like before before we had an ngs when we did sequencing we kind of had to know what we were looking for you know we would you'd be interested in one gene and you would sequence that gene and then you would try to find mutations or changes or you know you would look precisely at that gene but what ngs has really enabled is to look at uh you know the entire genome if that's what you want and this allows us to really um yeah, be able to study completely different disorders. So, for instance, uh, looking at sporadic disorders, which before wasn't possible, uh, looking at cancer, which before, you know, you could study cancer previously, but uh, you couldn't do it with the ease that you have now where you can, for instance, take, you know, take one person, a sample from from person, a, a blood sample, for instance, and then take a sample from a tumor and then sequence both and compare and try to find where are the differences. So what NGS has really enabled is, is to uh, look throughout the genome to try to find the answers uh, that you're looking for. So when, when we're talking like really about uh, use cases, this means that, for instance, um, before when you would look at, at kind of like more traditional genetics, you would uh, you would 
study, for instance, these very large families where there would be a lot of people in this family who would have the same disease. And then you would create kind of like a really big family tree. And then based on that, uh, try to find what was, you know, the mutation in the gene that was causing their disease. And what NGS now has enabled, for instance, is that if you have a couple who has a child who has epilepsy, for instance, that you just need to have uh, those three people, or in some cases, you can even just have a single child who has a disease, and you can sequence that child and find a mutation that is responsible for their disease. So in terms of um, you know, really, uh, how does this apply to patients? We're able now to diagnose diseases that we weren't even really sure they existed, or we didn't really understand um, how they existed, you know, just 15 or 20 years ago. That's a great point, And yeah. I would like to follow up on that and uh, ask you more about the rare diseases that some, yeah, 10 or 20 years ago often went undiagnosed. So mm -hmm. now we have a tool in our hands with which we can potentially detect the cause that is responsible for those particular diseases. I know at Nostos you also focus on rare disorders. So can you tell us a bit more about that and what is the potential of new sequencing technologies in deciphering those rare diseases? Yeah, so... I think the interesting thing about rare diseases is that, um, you know, when you hear the word rare disease, rare, you know, how, how rare must be, yeah, rare. I mean, it's in the name itself. But actually, um, even though each individual rare disease is rare, once you put them all together, uh, it really represents a really large proportion of the population. So some, something between 5 and 10% of the world population have a rare genetic disease. So this is about between 300 to 400 million people. A struggle that patients with rare disease have often is that um, it's difficult to recognize that the symptoms that they have are uh, you know, can be caused by a rare disease and often by a rare genetic disease. So often what these patients will do is that they, they will go from doctor to doctor, from test to test. And, and often, you know, they will, they will go through years and years of, of, you know, what we call the diagnostic odyssey, trying to find an answer as to what is the, you know, what disease do they have and what is causing this disease. Um, and now what next generation sequencing enables is that with one single test, you can potentially, you know, uh, skip these, these years of going to medical consultations and these years of undergoing tests. And with just one simple genetic test, uh, find the answer and, and know what is the name of the disease they have and find the mutation that is causing their disease. So at, at Nostos, what we're trying to do is um, to help in this process of, of analyzing these genetic tests and to be able to, to find more answers uh, and faster for these patients. Because the, the problem that they often have is that, um, I mean, not only does the, the entire process take really long, but that for most patients that undergo this journey, most of them will still not have an answer after a genetic test. So what we're trying to do is, is to have uh, more patients be able to receive more diagnosis. That's amazing. And that's a big problem. Uh, as you just mentioned, rare diseases are not that rare in the end. 5 to 10% of human population, that's a really huge number. That's, yeah, it's huge, and I think it's really unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. That's very counterintuitive. I think most of our listeners will be shocked by that. I certainly am. 
So you've mentioned that you help genetic labs to extract the most value out of that sequencing data. And the first question that pops in my head is, if it is a rare disease, how do you know which mutation is responsible for it? Yeah, <laughs> so that's the problem I think the entire field is is dealing with because, um, I mean, before one of the bottlenecks was really in, in sequencing, right, because we were d discussing about how... Uh, Sequencing used to be really expensive and that you you had to kind of know what you were looking for. And now that uh, next generation sequencing has really kind of like removed that bottleneck, the next problem is really in uh, interpreting the data. So um, what happens now is that um, in each genetic test that one does, so for instance, in, in if you would sequence, if we would sequence like your genome and my genome, uh, we would find between like four to five million differences between your genome and my genome. And this is something that we find, um, you know, in, in every individual, any given individual uh, shares like 99.9% .9 of our genome with any other individual. But this means that these differences still account to millions and millions of, of variations. So the challenge is really in trying to figure out which of these uh, millions of differences is meaningful and has potentially an impact on health. And the, the really big struggle here is that we understand uh, really little about the human genome. So if, if you think about that, you know, the human genome is, is huge and there's billions of possible SNPs in the human genome. And we currently understand less than about 1% of them. So this means that, that it's like a really uh, big space to be looking for answers and we don't really have a proper map to know what we're looking for. Um, so the the difficulty is not only in finding out which of these four million differences is meaningful but the problem is also that every time that we sequence a person we're going to find uh genetic mutations that we've never seen before so it's very possible that if if we would sequence like your genome or my genome uh, we would find mutations that we've never seen before and that potentially, uh, you know, I might be the only person in the world who has this mutation. So it's really difficult once you you see this type of, of genetic variation to try to put it to, to understand, you know, is this mutation that I've only seen in this person who, for instance, has a disease, is this the mutation that is causing their disease or is it just a harmless mutation, like, you know, the harmless mutations that we all carry? So that's really where the, the complexity comes from. So I know that at Nostos, you try to address that problem. I'm also aware that you are not allowed to talk about every little detail of that process, <laughs> but perhaps you can give us a little snippet of that. Yes, I, of course, like, um, I mean, I think genomics is, is like a really good example of a big data problem and a really good tool often to, to address big data problems is machine learning. Um, but the issue that we have with machine learning and genomics is that, um, you know, when you do machine learning, often like the quality of your model is only as good as the quality of the data that you use to train the model. But in the, pro in the case of genomics in particular, um, we have this really big problem that the data that we have um, is not 
really good. You know, it's biased because we understand much better about, uh, you know, mutations that cause disease and mutations that don't. Uh, we have a problem also that the, the data is often uh, very sparse. So, you know, if we have uh, what I was mentioning previously, that if you have billions of, of possible mutations, I mean, we only have like really good information, really good high quality data on less than 1% of them. And, and this is really a, an issue and an obstacle that we're trying to address at Nostos Genomics. And we're trying to fill these gaps in data by generating our own, bio, our own data. And we do this um, by doing uh, biological experiments what, where what we're doing is modeling all of these uh, mutations that we're interested in understanding what are their consequences. We model them uh, in a biological system and we try to understand what are their effects at the molecular and the cellular level. So once we have like really uh, high quality and thorough data, we use this data then to train our machine learning models so that they're able to, to learn from this high quality data and that they're able to kind of like extrapolate what are the larger biological patterns that can influence whether a genetic variant causes, uh, you know, is damaging to a gene and causes disease or not. Okay, I see. I remember talking to you a few months ago about the genes that we know fairly a lot about, like BRCA1 and 2. And you've mentioned mm -hmm. that there are still a lot of SNPs, a lot of mutations that we have no idea about their function and uh, if they have any relation to cancer or other disease. Yeah, yeah that's completely crazy because um, BRCA1 and 2 are they're probably the most tested genes in the world. I think, uh, you know, hereditary breast cancer is like one of the, the largest indications for genetic testing nowadays. And the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, instead of, as we've been sequencing more and more people, more women uh, who, are, who may have a uh, higher risk of, of having breast cancer, instead of having more answers, you know, of knowing, of understanding better whether a specific variant, uh, you know, predisposes someone to cancer or not, we actually have more questions. You know, we have a lot more, if you look at the databases now uh, that people use to share information on genetic variants, uh, BRCA1 and 2 are actually the genes that have the most uh, variants that we don't know what they mean. You know, they're variants that we've seen before and that we're just not able to, to put in a box as to whether they cause disease or they don't. So, yeah, so BRCA1 and 2, you know, they should be well understood. But I think that the only thing that we've really been able to see from this is that actually we don't understand much and we really need like a good map uh, to guide us into if we want to start doing uh, precision medicine and we really want to start exploiting uh, these, these like, great technologies that we have now to look into DNA, we're going to have to, to make a much better map to guide us along the way. So am I getting it right? We need to not only sequence as many genomes as possible, but also integrate that genomic data with phenotypic assessment of patients, like history of their disease, environmental factors, and uh, yeah, any other clinically relevant information, and then try to make sense of that huge pile of data altogether. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely correct. And I think the genomics field is is doing something quite good because I think like everyone has realized what a huge challenge this is and how no single person or no single 
you know, academic center or no single company is going to be able to solve this. So in, in genomics, there's really been a movement towards trying to share data and to make data openly available. So for instance, if you look, there's, there's already some um, initiatives. So for instance, Nomad uh, with a G-N-O, <laughs> Gnomad um, has uh, about, uh, they have not like they've aggregated genomic data from 140,000 people uh, and it's publicly available for people to see. Then you have initiatives like, for instance, the UK Biobank, they, they're making available about 500,000, um, I think, exomes together with uh, clinical data, also uh, openly available for, for researchers or for companies to, to carry out research. Um, so there's really, there's really this push towards you know, sharing data and, and sharing as data as rich as possible, because of course, I'm coming from the genomic side. So I'm, I'm obviously interested in, in DNA and how this relates to human disease. But you have many layers to this because, you know, there, there's this whole component of how you go from, from DNA to a full organism and you have, you know, uh, DNA, RNA, proteins. So there's really um, a lot of, there's a really big need to create good databases and good uh, resources for people to share data that is as rich as possible. Absolutely. We will put the link to Genomad um, database to the episode notes uh, for this episode for our listeners. Um, yeah, and it is nice to see that the genomics field is quite collaborative because data sharing is essential for the yeah advancement of the field. Yeah. Um, yeah, nobody has capacity to analyze all the data alone and no single institution can acquire um, a sufficient amount of data. So the more we can share, the further we can move forward. My next question might be a little naive and perhaps even borderline nice. stupid, but bear with me. Uh, why do we really need machine learning to analyze genomes? Isn't that simple? We just know the specific positions in genome that can be mutated, those specific SNPs, and we can just focus our analysis on those. So what real advantages does machine learning bring to that process? Machine learning is essentially needed because what, what you need to do is to extrapolate um, because it, it, it's this issue of the human genome being so vast that um, it's not it would be very challenging to try to, for instance, go and model every single possible mutation in the human genome if, if you would do this actually in a biological system. So what we do is that we use a technique that we can uh, scalably generate a large number of these mutations, and then we can study them uh, and study their consequences on different parameters in, in a cell, and then use this information uh, and feed it into a machine learning algorithm so that the algorithm can extrapolate, you know, what are the parameters that are important and and so that it's able to predict once we um, look at a different mutation for which we don't have all the information so that this machine learning algorithm can infer and extrapolate and say based on what i already know from all these other mutations that i've been trained on i can predict whether this mutation causes disease or not um, just because of the dimensions of the the problem uh, it, it's a problem that a, a human cannot um, really address properly. And we also have this issue of, of you know, uh, if you have millions of 
mutations in a single human genome, and you have to uh, interpret them uh, for every single genetic test that you do, uh, you need to scale this somehow. And unfortunately, the human brain is not uh, as scalable as one would wish it would be. Yeah. So we replace it with an algorithm, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Let's hope our neuroscience friends will work on that. Yeah. <laughs> to scale up our brain a little. <laughs> we are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important to us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a person we should interview, please write us an email to team at personalizedmedicinemedia.com or you can just reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To make sure that you won't miss the new episodes of our show, please subscribe to the newsletter at our website, personalizedmedicinemedia.com. It's one word, personalizedmedicinemedia, spelled with Z as in American English. Our website is also the place where you can find show notes for each episode that include bios of our guests, links to their most notable work and projects, and follow-up reads on the topics we discuss during the episode. And now, let's get back to the interview. There is one more topic that I would like to discuss with you. Since we are on the Personalized Medicine podcast, I really want to know what do you think about the implementation of genomics in personalized medicine. We can use genetic testing not only to diagnose diseases per se, but also as a tool in uh, companion diagnostics. I think a good example yeah. for that would be prescribing herzepine to breast cancer patients who have overexpression or mutations of their HER2 gene. So where else do you see the potential for such companion diagnostic tests? Will this test be restricted to oncology or do you think other fields will uh, follow suit? Yeah, I mean, uh, oncology is definitely, I think, where um, there is perhaps more, uh, the field is more advanced and, and genomics is really much closer to to delivering personalized medicine. I think because oncology is, you know, cancer is such a common disorder and we, we I mean, we still don't understand it well, but we understand it relatively well and we have really good treatments uh, that can be targeted towards specific molecular uh, alterations. So I think uh, oncology is really like a really good example as to what genomics is already offering in terms of personalized medicine, you know, whether it's uh, early diagnosis of a tumor, for instance, with liquid biopsies, or whether it's uh, finding a personalized treatment, um, a targeted treatment, you know, if a patient has a specific mutation or the overexpression of a certain gene. Um, it also can allow for, you know, monitoring the evolution of a tumor to know if, if you know, the, the, there is um, um, resistance developing or recurrence of a tumor. So I think that's a really good example. But um, I, I have, I'm really coming perhaps much more from a rare disease uh, perspective. And I think in that sense, uh, genomics is also like really, really promising, but it, it still, um, it's still in very early phases. And I, th I would argue that one of the 
really uh, promises that that genetic medicine can deliver is changing a little bit the way we think about certain diseases. So for instance, um, if we, we think about diseases like, for instance, intellectual disability or autism, um, actually, these are a little bit of umbrella terms. You know, intellectual disability is not one disease. It's probably, you know, hundreds of different diseases that just manifest uh, in, in the way that you see a patient who has, you know, uh, uh, alterations in, in their cognitive uh, abilities. But um, what this will, you know, once uh, we start doing, for instance, genetic testing as a more standardized way to diagnose patients who have intellectual disability, we'll be able to you know, recognize patients who have specific mutations, for instance. And once these treatments are available, then we'll be able to treat patients with much more targeted interventions um, that might, you know, potentially even, uh, you know, treat or cure things like intellectual disability. So so it's, it's this idea of, um, you know, changing the way medicine is being done currently, which is often more like treating the symptoms or treating um, diseases as they appear from a clinical perspective, which is, you know, if a person has, for instance, intellectual disability, well, perhaps they need to, um, you know, uh, receive certain types of, of therapy or go to certain schools or receive certain stimulation to help them in their development. But we never really think about what is the root cause of this intellectual disability and whether specific targeted interventions would really uh, you know, improve uh, the quality of life and the development for a specific patient. So maybe to give you a, a more like tangible example of what this of what this could look like. So for instance, um, there's this uh, really interesting case going on uh, that was recently published. Actually, the the paper came out uh, this week um, of a little girl who um, I think she's maybe six or seven, and she has um, a neurological disorder where she's having she has neurodegeneration. So she started at a certain point having uh, regression in in her uh, development as a child. She started having movement problems and language problems, and um, she she was taken to the doctor and they diagnosed her with a, a genetic disease that is a neurodegenerative disease. And actually her mother um, did a lot of, you know, she put a lot of effort. Uh, and this is something that you often see with, with rare, di rare disease patients, that the patients are really uh, involved and really proactive and really trying to drive, uh, you know, the uh, journey sometimes, you know, demanding genetic tests and this kind of things. But the the point of this is to say that um, the little girl uh, was taken to a, uh, a research hospital in the U.S. And over the course of one year, they did genetic testing. They found the mutation that was causing their disease. They were able to develop a specific treatment for her in the form of an antisense oligonucleotide. They tested it in cells, and then they obtained FDA approval to to use it as an experimental therapy for her. So she's now currently receiving this experimental therapy um, uh, to try to you know, treat or to potentially cure her disorder, which if you think about it, none of this would be possible if she wouldn't have a diagnosis and if she wouldn't have like a specific molecular diagnosis. So I think really the promise of precision medicine for, for patients who have rare disorders is really this, um, you know, being able to tell them exactly what disease they have, exactly what mutation they have, uh, what is this mutation causing, and whether there's potentially a treatment out there for them 
that will treat them and their mutation and their disease specifically, rather than receiving this kind of like umbrella treatment that often patients with rare diseases are receiving. Um, so I, I think that's really, uh, I think that's really exciting. I, I hope that, you know, in the next uh, decade, this will become more and more common and, and that things that, you know, disorders that we consider currently that are untreatable uh, will be treatable, you know, that it will be a revolution a little bit like, like, you know, leukemia before chemotherapy existed was essentially a death sentence. And now uh, some forms of leukemia can be treated rather well with really good uh, prognosis and really good survival rates. Since we have started speaking about the future, I would like to continue a little bit in this direction. We have started this episode with the past, so let's finish with the outlook for the future. What do you think will be the next uh, biggest advances in genomics, both technologically speaking and also in terms of clinical utility? Yeah, I I think, um, I mean, technologically, one of the big uh, challenges that I think a lot of people are working, for, working on right now is on uh, long read sequencing. Um, we talked before about how, you know, even though the Human Genome Project finished, uh, I think, in 2004, there's still some parts of the human genome that we're not able to sequence properly just because the technology that we have is not good enough. Um, so we have a really hard time kind of like putting the puzzle back together specifically for those areas. And um, the promise is also that long read uh, sequencing will allow us to, to kind of uh, look at much larger pieces of the genome and not just um, look at specific, you know, single nucleotide mutations, but really look at, at um, how a gene works within its context. You know, how does a gene work within its regulatory environment? How does the position of a gene uh, change specifically? So I think from a, a, a technical point of view, I think that's that's really exciting. And I'm really curious to see where that goes. And if we talk really about practical terms, I think um, I would really like to see the, this promise of precision medicine and genomic medicine being realized. Like we, we hear um, a lot about, for instance, liquid biopsies or prenatal diagnostics. And I think it would be really interesting to see how these technologies become much more commonplace um, in routine practice, right? That, that, you know, a person wouldn't have to undergo, I don't know, for instance, a colonoscopy. Um, after a certain age, but rather you would just go in into a medical lab and take a blood sample, and then they you could have a really accurate and safe test to know whether you're you know you are in the at high risk of developing cancer or whether you you might have a, a tumor in really early stages. Because I think um, yeah, this this would completely transform uh, also medicine as we practice it now. That we would be able to detect cancer much earlier on and have, um, yeah, much um, less harmful medical interventions. Um, so I would like to see uh, you know genetic medicine be realized as uh, trying to keep a person as healthy as possible. And, and, you know, try to diagnose people as early as possible and uh, try to prevent uh, diseases from evolving too far before you catch them, this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Perhaps just to conclude it, 
A lot of these changes will not be possible if doctors won't start implementing technology and if insurance companies won't reimburse um, for those tests. So what do you think is the biggest challenge in terms of that mind switch, uh, first from the clinician's perspective, to adopt those tests and make them a routine procedure in clinics? Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think really one of the, the big challenges is um, I think medical doctors need to see the clinical utility of these tests because um, in conversations we've had with medical doctors, often, uh, you know, a comment that often comes up is that, um, well, what is the point of a genetic test uh, if you're not going to find anything? Actually, even in conversations with rare disease patients, uh, you know, we've heard from rare disease patients that their medical doctor refused to do any genetic tests on them because they wouldn't find anything. And, if, and you know, they when they actually did, they said, like, I'm actually surprised we found, a, you know, a genetic mutation. So I think that this, you it's really challenging. And, and I do understand that if you, you know, uh, tests like whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing they are really expensive and if you do a test and you don't find anything it might feel like you've wasted money and i understand that you know on um in a in a health uh system where you, you know there's obviously always limited funds and and you have to think well how these funds are assigned um you probably want to get as much clinical utility as you can from a test. And, and this is actually one of the points that we're trying to address with Nostos Genomics because um, there's always, uh, as I mentioned before, about 30% of patients who undergo genetic testing um, receive a diagnosis. And for many, uh, you know, for the remaining 70%, many of these patients, well, either no mutation is found or sometimes a mutation, which is called a variant of unknown significance is found, which means essentially, you know, we found something, but we really don't know what it means. And, and what we want to do is to really um, address this problem and try to help uh, the labs who perform genetic testing to interpret the data as, as you know, as well as possible to be able to provide uh, the, you know, the strongest and the best answers in the way that are backed up by data, that are backed up by evidence, and that they can rely on that if they give, you know, a certain uh, result back to a patient, that this result is reliable and to have uh, more patients be able to receive more diagnosis. Great. Rocia, the future looks bright. And what you are doing with Nostos is very exciting. I wish you the best of luck. It was amazing to have you today on our podcast. Thank you so much for your insights. And I think we've covered a lot of interesting material for our audience. Yeah, it was amazing to be here. I'm happy you enjoyed it. I have now the very last question for you. If our listeners would like to find you online or reach out, how can they do it? Uh, you can find us at nostos-genomics.com or you can send me an email at rocio.acuna at nostosgenomics.com. Perfect. We will put those links into the notes of this episode. Rocio, thank you so much again. And I am looking forward to discussing the future of genomics, the advances, the predictions that we've made today, again, perhaps in a few years from now. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. The easiest way to do it is on LinkedIn or Twitter, where you can find us just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. And don't miss the next episode yourself. For this, subscribe to the newsletter on our website, personalizedmedicinemedia.com. We also publish the show notes for each episode there that include our guests' bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest us a guest for the show, write us an email to team at personalizedmedicinemedia.com or reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a great day and until next time.